Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we are set to explore another movie. Uh, I do have Father Mike Ritter in studio with me. So, Father Mike, great to have you with me another evening. Thanks, Joe. We're surviving the heat here. I think it's 107 outside. (laughs) It is. It is really, really hot, and we are in the evening. So, Father Mike, this evening we are going to take up The Maze Runner, The Death Cure. But before we get into what that movie was all about, which, oh, by the way, was a request from you, the listening audience out there, because it has been the number one uh, DVD sold, I think, over the past, what, four or five weeks, Father Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did want to reflect at least a little bit into why we open up with prayer. Every once in a while here on Seeds of Truth, I do like to hit the pause button on what yeah. I'm talking about so as to uh, say to everyone out there why we open up with the Our Father. To put it simply, to neglect prayer is to neglect ministry, is to neglect what God is calling us to do, because in prayer uh, we come to better understand just not who we are, but also (laughs) where we're going, Mm. what we should be doing, and here on the radio program, Father Mike, what we should be saying. And by the grace of God, as we pray the Our Father and other prayers, we invoke the presence of God, we invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit, that what we do is uh, guided by the Holy Spirit and in God. Well, and it's, it's the perfect prayer, of course. I, I'm, I'm always struck by, um, there's a line from Charles Pegway. Mm. He wrote kind of mm. a poetic imagination of what God the Father's response would be upon hearing this prayer on the lips of Christians. And the first line of how he imagines the Father responding, he says, Call me Father and go on to ask me for anything you want for me. Mm. You know, like, mm. if, you, if we can come before God as Father, we can proceed, because we've, we have found the way to reach Him. Mm. And so, uh, in that kind of imaginative context, uh, which I think is a right context, absolutely, uh, we place our reflections um, as sons, as daughters of God, before the one who says, come to me as your Father, and then proceed. <laughs> yeah, I think, Father Mike, there your words bring light to the all-important passage that comes to us from Romans chapter 8, verse 15, that, that we have not received the, the spirit of slavery in which we fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship in which you cry, Abba, that intimate cry, yeah. Daddy, come help me. Daddy, come be with me. Uh, Daddy, bring down the presence of of your Holy Spirit, that it may guide us in a reflection on the Maze Runner, the Death Cure, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, Father Mike, the Maze Runner, the Death Cure. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting series, and now this is the third uh, installment, I guess, the, the third movie. I had discovered, just doing a little bit of research, that uh, there was actually a prequel and a book that, that kind of lays out the situation. But just to, to put it very simply, this is kind of a post-apocalyptic world where you know, um, by way of kind of population control, a virus was introduced into the world, which has this terrible ravaging effect of essentially turning the infected person into a zombie. And now the world has been, uh, you know, all but desolated by this, uh, by the the original natural disaster, which was like a solar flare scorched the earth or whatever. And now this virus has left the majority of the world's population uh, infected. And so you have... Um, 
you know, on the poverty side of things, you have uh, small settlements of, of people trying to make it in this kind of demolished post-apocalyptic world infested by zombies. And then you have the super wealthy who have uh, kind of uh, isolated themselves. And that's where the, the, the maze runner kind of picks things up. There are, for whatever reason, some young people, children, adolescents, who are immune to the virus. Mm. And so they've mm. been kind of captured and they're put uh, without their knowledge, really, and against their will in, inside of these, uh, this maze so that they can be studied to figure out how they respond to different stimuli and, and whatnot. Uh, ultimately, the, the end game there is they want to take their blood, their DNA, whatever it is that makes them immune to the virus, and be able to come up with uh, a cure. By the time we're in the third movie, they have a... Um, a, uh, a serum, which is resistant to the progression of the of the virus, but it doesn't eliminate it totally. Uh, we've talked in this show about the uh, Christ haunted culture, and uh, it, it's pretty clear watching these movies that nobody is trying to suggest that anybody in the in the movie is Saint Paul, yeah, you know, or yeah, anything yeah, like yeah. that. But but there are these kind of uh, truth themes, the Christ haunted culture, and. I mean, figure this: you have the in the in the battle between good and evil, and for the sal- salvation of humanity, you have a leader who is kind of a Christ figure who can save the world by his blood, and he's yeah. the only one who has the blood to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so there's very a, a very much a Christological thread there that that we can recognize because we we look at our lives, we look at our experience through the lenses of Jesus risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I will say this just to kick off our conversation, and, and we, we talked about this. This is one of the few memory uh, movies we've actually sat down and watched yeah. together <laughs> without much talking. Well, actually, it's the first movie that we yeah. sat down together we without much talking that wasn't in the movie theater, right, if right. we're going to be honest. True, true. <laughs> uh, you know, and one of the things that struck me is this is a big genre in movies, the whole zombie apocalypse mm, thing. Mm, it's uh, It really mm. captures the fascination of people, and this is nothing new. I mean, the... The Old Testament uh, biblical literature is rich with uh, apocryphal imagery and, and even beyond and before the, the scope of, of biblical uh, literature. This is a, a genre that's captured the imagination for, mm-hmm. for millennia. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's definitely the World War Z we were talking about, uh, The Walking Dead, all this stuff. It's, it's big in the culture. And I, and I find myself asking the question, maybe our, our listeners would wrestle with this question as well, why yeah. is that? Mm. I would suggest to you that uh, apocryphal... Uh, Literature, even in the Bible, is, is very much misunderstood and less uh, than being about uh, coded messages for the future for us to un- unpack and figure out when does it all land and what has to happen first. Well, it, wait, Father Mike, you didn't know? <laughs> February 2nd, 2021. It's all over? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, get ready. Uh, you know, to me, if we were to strip it all away and, and, and ask the question, what does this genre try to tell us? I, I think that it tries to tell us that there's hope. Yeah. It tries to help uh, tell us that, the, that our future... Uh, belongs to God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that if you strip all the imagery of it and the drama of it, very powerful imagery. But what what are these what are these authors? Uh, what are these movies trying to tell us? Is that you know that our future uh, is in God's hands, and those are good hands, and and certainly uh, there's a there's an inherent struggle there. Yeah. But that the future belongs to God. Yeah, and apocalyptic literature, Father Mike, does something that only apocalyptic literature can do. You know, you use the word imagination. Well, what do you think about when you think about apocalyptic literature? But signs and, and images and, and figures, and what do they do? There's something about that kind of thing that evangelizes the imagination. I mean, I just use the word image. It is root to the word imagination for a reason. When we see an image, 
when we see a sign, when we see this physical expression of something, this physical manifestation of something, it has its own way of evangelizing the imagination. So apocalyptic literature, yeah, it evangelizes the imagination. And I like what you said there. This should not be a point of departure from Christ, but really a point of departure towards Christ. Because apocalyptic literature, as it properly belongs to the Bible, of course, is pointing towards Christ defeating the enemy. So, yeah, therein lies the hope. Yeah, um, and so this movie has that in spades. You know, you yeah, have the yeah. catastrophic global event. You have the uh, literally the the battle for the last human city. Yeah, and, and the what's at stake here is kind of the dying off of the human race. And and I think if there's an image there that tries to suggest something, and, and it's it's just the essential existential piece of our of our human life, whatever your religious or intellectual background might be. Uh, good wins in the end. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think if there's something powerful about the drama of these movies, it's it's that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how late in the game, even if you're surrounded by flesh-eating, walking dead, uh, goodness trumps evil in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, apocalyptic literature for me is about that uh, hope that shines even in the latest and the darkest hour. This ultimate existential too opens up, and, and this is where we have the drama and the story of it all. It, it opens up kind of a fundamental choice for the for the person, for mm. the character. Mm. I have to decide, you know, yes. what, uh, yes. what, what side am I on here? Yes. And, and I would just suggest to you that that is the thread running through our life, you know, that that's the kind of uh, fault line along which we're kind of having our human experience. Yeah, and so part of that experience is our struggle in grace, our deeper understanding of, you know, Father Mike Vice and virtue. And this movie kind of props up this image, right? This analogy of the virus, which, as the Church Fathers have picked it up in the past, is an analogy for sin, Mm. right? And so I thought what we could do for at least a little while here this evening is talk about virus as an analogy of sin and then just speak of sin in more general terms, to put it back in the context of where it belongs, relationship, right? So maybe we should first say something about how we think about an analogy. If you were to break open the word, Father Mike, it, it comes from the Greek analogia, analogia, and so there you have a Greek compound, ana, which means what? Uh, upon or according to, mm. and logos, and logos, of course, is uh, speech, discourse, statement. So... An analogy where Webster might define it as that which is proportionate to something comes from a word that speaks to speech that is according to something, right? Speech that is according to something. So to speak of the virus analogous to sin, what we are saying then is what a virus is and what it does, physically speaking, organically speaking, maybe can give us some insight into what sin is and and what sin does. Okay, so... Mm. If we are going to get underneath this analogy of the virus and put it into the context of sin, I guess we have to first define what a virus is. Now, there's a number of things we can talk about here, Father Mike. I think a good point to start would be that a virus is this tiny microbe, smaller than bacteria. So small is a virus that you actually need a special microscope to see it. Mm. So viruses to the naked eye are unseen. And I thought this to be... A good initial point to bring up because ultimately <laughs> we have to remember that Satan in the garden was what but subtle. Yes, on one hand, sin comes at us in expected ways, right? Maybe in the form of an addiction, but it also comes in unexpected ways. 
And if we are not formed into the nature of ice and, and how it works, it can sneak up behind us. And so we have to see that, that already when you're talking about something that is unseen to the naked eye, there's a correlation to sin because Satan is subtle, right? <laughs> he works in, in unexpected ways. How about the fact that a virus needs a host to survive? Mm. A virus needs a host to survive. So you were just talking about choices, right? We make choices. We make bad choices and we make good choices. When we make bad choices, we become the host, right? But when we make good choices, Satan cannot infect us if we're going to use that word. The masters of the spiritual life and the moral theologians alike remind us that ultimately <laughs> Satan works in such a way where we have to give our consent. Yes, there's a lot of things he can do to tempt us. Yes, there's a lot of things he can put before us that might encourage a bad choice. But in the end, we have to consent, right? And so I thought this to be another important point that the virus needs a host to survive. Sin needs a host, right? If we do not give consent, then Satan has no authority over our life. Mm. So here we are, Father Mike, talking about how the virus is analogous to sin. And in the end, what we are gaining here is the much deeper truth that behind an analogy that is tied to the physical world, there is what we can call a spiritual physics. That is to say how something physical can communicate a transcendent truth. Huh? Yeah, I think it's such a great image. And certainly the idea of um, sin as kind of illness it's a very biblical idea, and you know, and we have some of these pairings of the forgiveness of sins and, and physical healings in the gospel to kind of drive yes, that point yes. home. But it also, yeah, I think a lot of times when we think uh, just uh, kind of culturally, I, I guess, when we think about, uh, or colloquially, when we think about sin, usually we think about things that are on the list of prohibited behaviors. Yes. You know, yeah. and, and so that says it's a very sterile, kind of lifeless uh, unsophisticated sense of what we're talking about, but but sin is very much a relational concept, and and it's kind of this uh, living thing. I I have to ask myself the question sometimes um, related to sin or or anything really, but why do I keep opening myself up to stuff that I don't want in my life? You know, mm, or, yeah. or or maybe the best image that I have is um, you know the, the plants in front of your house that grow are the ones that you water. You know, you speak of a, a, a virus needing a host, and I would say that that, that dynamic is uh, well, you, the virus gets in and then kind of consumes you to nourish itself. Yep, yep. Uh, it's a great image for sin, and, and the way I would put it too is uh, in terms of the moral decision, too many times in my life I'm, I'm watering plants in my yard that I don't wish to see grow strong. And I'm always so surprised to walk outside and see how vibrant these trees are. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so for me, so much of the moral decision uh, means stepping back and asking the question, uh, what am I giving place to in my life? And um, look down the road a bit and ask the question, do I want this to to really become who I am, essentially? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Which is what uh, any relationship does, but particularly a relationship to sin or to untruth or to selfishness or, you know, make your list. Sin has this dynamism. Yes, yes, it does. I mean, at its core, it speaks to disobedience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sin is breaking the father's heart we were talking about the father earlier sin is breaking the father's heart yeah you know and and we have to understand it as such and you know some people come up to me father mike and say well the church you know it's an institution and has so many rules and has so many laws but as a father 
I have rules and laws in place because I know that if my children break those laws or break those rules, there's going to be consequences. So law always points back to relationship. And this is very biblical because even the Hebrew word for law, yadah, I think we may have talked yeah, about this before. Yeah, missing the mark. Yes, yeah. and sin is uh, literally well, to miss the mark. And it's not hard. It's not hard to look at our own histories, to look at our relationships, and to see how, uh, let's take untruth, for example, lying. Okay, don't, you, should not, you should not bear a false witness. Let's call that a rule. Fine. But it's not hard to look at our lives and to see how corrosive that is. Mm -hmm. You know, like a virus, how it kind of eats away at uh, what's healthy about who we are. I don't know if we had this conversation on air or not about, uh, you know, I had a rabbi come into our class one time and talk about the Ten Commandments from from a Jewish perspective. And he says, the idea that you can break the commandments. He says, yes, I think you do. Yeah. yeah. So this thought, you can't break the commandments. He says, they're the truth. Yeah. about what it means to be who you are in a relationship yeah. with God, with yourself, with creation. He says you can only break yourself against yes. the commandments, yeah. uh, not because God is a punisher, but because y- you can't violate the truth of who you are yes. without doing damage to yourself. Yes. Uh, a virus can only survive uh, given a host, and I think uh, it's a great way to catch ourselves in moral discernment. Uh, to what am I giving place within myself? Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I nourishing? Because really that's kind of, uh, it, it, human energy is, is a limited resource and it, it goes to where we send it essentially. And what, yeah. am I, what am I giving myself over to ultimately in relationship? We, we've had the conversation, uh, what was so striking to me about uh, the movie and the progression of this virus is, um, you know, you have this group of poor kind of uh, marginalized people that are fighting heroically. Uh, throughout this movie to to kind of save their friends firstly but also put an end to this oppression of the of the extremely wealthy the, they deserve protections from the virus as well they're not afraid of their marginalization they're not afraid of a heroic death they are terrified of becoming the zombie yep. uh, the, 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 they're terrified that the virus uh, they lose themselves mm-hmm. they become mm-hmm. these kind of horrible people they bec- not horrible people but these flesh eating kind of zombies in one of the very powerful scenes, uh, Thomas, who's our main uh, character here, uh, his friend from the very beginning, whose name is... Newt. Newt. Newt, we discover throughout the course of the movie, has been infected, and that virus is slowly progressing. And he's starting to lose himself. Some bursts of anger initially, and then, you know, in the, in the climax of it all, uh, he's saying, you know, you have to kill me. And, and then, you know, he's kind of phasing in and out of, like, zombie stage, you know, where yeah. he's just... He's lost his relationships, his friendships. He's become a monster. And the great fear, that the, the, the worst fate, the fate worse than death, is becoming this disfigured person, losing what you once were. The movie closes with a uh, kind of a tearful letter, I guess, after death, you know, from the grave, which uh, Newt had left for Thomas and talking about, I'm not, I'm not scared of dying. Mm. I'm scared of... Losing the memories, the friendship. Yeah, that was a real powerful moment yeah. for me, the, the, the loss of memory. That line, you know, the real tragedy is not death, but becoming a monster. I was made to reflect upon the martyrs. Yeah. Where they looked into the eye of the storm and said, the real tragedy is not death, yeah. but becoming a monster that is sin over time. Yeah, right? because sin, it... it it breaks us. It distorts yeah. us. We yeah. lose ourselves. Well, and you already said it. I mean, it grabs the host, 
and it destroys the host. Something else about a virus, they just don't die off. They go dormant. Yeah. And they just kind of wait around, mm-hmm. right, until the time is right to attach itself to a host. Yeah. Um, this is why our moral decision-making is perpetual. Yeah. And even unto our dying breath, we need to kind of look into the eye of the storm and say, yeah, the real tragedy is not death, but becoming the man that I don't want to become. Yes. No, I think that this is such an important insight for our particular cultural climate today that doesn't want to hear much about sin, and, and we don't want to talk about it, frankly, and that, that even the language of it comes across as moralizing and yes. judgmental and authoritarian. But we, we can put a lot of the, the language of that aside and just ask the question, does this, is this not an ongoing observation of human nature and religion and, and experience you know, mm-hmm. over time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that you don't have to be giving people rules and moralizing or claiming any moral authority or even be a moral person yourself to simply point out that uh, certain things in life are corrosive. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, the, the virus perspective on the nature of sin, I think, is very helpful in terms of getting inside of the, the kind of spiritual uh, physics uh, of who we are, that there are, simple, there are certain kind of moral principles that are simply that lead to life. Yeah, yeah. And there are certain things in life that are just, they're corrosive, and, and one only has to look to the, the long experience of dealing with the corrosion uh, to deduce that. So bringing all this together for me, I think a great, the great moral question, I think, and sometimes we skip this step or we don't think much of it, is um, who am I trying to become? What am I becoming here? Or who am I being called to be? Because so often I think we can fixate on uh, what what... Give me the details. What did I do? And tell me why that's right or why that's wrong. That's where we get stuck. And I, well, I disagree with you. But I think the, the broader and the deeper moral question is, no, who am I trying to become? Yeah. And uh, we see that in the progression of the virus, I am progressively losing myself. And sin is very much that progression, um, yeah. starting in, in very small things. But the, the moral question is ultimately, uh, who am I trying to become? Who am I being called to be? And how is that truth? that kind of arc of my life expressing itself in my relationships and, and in the decisions that I'm making. So I think this uh, imagery uh, is very appropriate to the moral conversation that we could probably get into in a lot of ways at yeah. another time. Yeah, well said, Father Mike. As you were talking, I couldn't help but think of the Beatitudes. If you were to read carefully the Beatitudes, and really the whole Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes kickstart the Sermon on the Mount, of course, there's really an underlining question um, certainly some of the questions you raise, but alongside those questions, the question, am I free? Or Jesus asking us, are you free? Hmm. And we know intuitively whether or not we are free. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. We know down deep whether or not uh, we are free, and it really is a question about freedom in the end. There is a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be. And we need to live in that gap. And, and if we live in that gap, we live in the gap of becoming the person that God calls us to be. Mm. And that is, I think, that the place of striving. Another, I think, key piece from this movie that, that fits this conversation is that the virus works slowly. Mm. So many of us today, we say, well, it's just venial sin and it's not mortal sin. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> one leads to the other, 
we have to be careful about thinking in that way because ultimately that is where the adversary wants you. Yeah. And so we do need to ask those questions that you were, you were raising. And really the question that I think I bring up here is, are we free? Yeah. Because there's a lot of venial sin out there that are like handcuffs. They, they, they don't allow us to, to become that person that God is calling us to become. And, you know, to take this virus image and the sin image to its natural conclusion, again, the only remedy or the only freedom is the blood of the one who has to sacrifice himself to save. Amen. You know, Amen. so it's such a beautiful image. This is a great movie. Uh, there's a lot in there, you know, the... Uh, there's a lot of social justice stuff and oppression and all of that kind of stuff. You want to speak to our point about uh, human nature reflecting on itself. I mean, one of the big obstacles in this movie is we have uh, a, a huge wall built around a city keeping the clean people in and the unclean people out. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about how we use our stories to touch safely on very, very difficult issues for us and to reflect on those issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, this, this is case in point, uh, a great example of a of a movie that takes up all kinds of themes for us as a culture and puts them in front of us as a story yeah. so we can examine them from a safe distance. I think that this movie has all of that and does all of that. I think it's worth watching with a reflective eye. Yeah, and certainly that is our hope in what we do here, right, Father Mike, that out from our discussions, you might go to the movie a second time or third time or maybe <laughs> a first time to watch these movies with a reflective eye and that we might actually gain something from this movie that we can apply to our life and actually might help us advance in our walk with God and how we might glorify God in that walk. Mm. My closing thought, Father Mike, you spoke to the blood of Christ, Thomas being this Savior-like figure. The blood of Thomas was only going to save if it mingled with the one who had the virus, right? So, for us as Christians and as Catholics, something to be mindful of is, you know, we go to the sacrament of confession and we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we right the ship, right? We receive the grace and the strength necessary to overcome those obstacles and to not give in to the temptations of the adversary and and the viruses he wishes to infect us with, if you will. So, So as you use the word reflective, that's my closing reflection, that we might put this directly into the context of our faith and think about, Father Mike, ways in which we can be more practical in how we, how we journey in our walk with God. That, uh, yes, once, once the blood of our Savior has mingled with our blood, we now have divine life-giving blood. Mm. And, and this is what uh, in the end, I, I think what we're after here, this is the hope, as you spoke to it early. This is our hope. Okay, we are out of time. Can you close us with a word of prayer? Good and gracious God, you are our hope and our future. Our lives are in your hands. We ask you for your blessing, you who are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Father. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.